and welcome to Cloud9Fin, a podcast on all things leverage finance. We follow corporate debt from issuance to redemption, credits from performing to distressed, and everything in between. I'm Bianca Boro, and today, for our last podcast for 2023, I'm sitting down with our CEO, Stephen Hunter, to go over the highs and lows of the year. Thanks for coming on today, Stephen. Great to be here, Bianca. Thanks for having me. Well, what a year it's been. Another unprecedented year for the market. Everyone was hoping for that post-COVID recovery, but we've had global political upheaval thrown into the mix with the ongoing war in Ukraine and the more recent conflict between Israel and Palestine. Stephen, can you tell us how all of these external shocks have impacted the world we care about here at Ninefin, which is leverage finance? What a great opening question, Bianca. To, to be honest, I, I think really the macro events have played a little bit of a backseat uh, to interest rates. Uh, interest rates have kind of really been the main thing driving markets in, in the last few months. And it's easy to forget that, you know, 18 months ago, we had effectively 0% interest rates in Europe. We had between 50 and 75 basis points interest rates in the US and the UK. And now in Europe, we're at 4.5%. US and UK is at you know, 5 and a quarter, 5.5%. And that's completely new. And the idea a few years ago of persistent high inflation or anything other than a completely zero rate interest environment is, is pretty alien for anyone who's been in markets in the last decade. But with that said, we've still not had a hard landing. We haven't had a big recession yet. Inflation has largely been brought under control and debt markets have basically been open and pretty resilient at pricing risk. Now, when I was back in my banking days, uh, you know, in prior years, even the tiniest little bit of uncertainty would have caused markets to shut and no one would have been able to price a deal for months at a time. But for basically every single month this year, there's been a price at which people can do, do deals. Uh, you know, 10 years ago, a wobble would have meant telling issuers you got to sit out for two or three months and you'd have to wait for the window to open. But if you look back on even the last five years, we've had a lot of negative news. We've had a once in a hundred year pandemic that shut the world economy. We had SVB and a regional banking crisis blow up. We had a big inflation wave. We had oil prices rocketing all over the place. And yet here we are still doing deals. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty incredible. Um, so you moved out to New York to start the Ninefin operations out there. How have you found that the US market is different from the European market? I think the biggest thing is size. The US market is just so much bigger than the European space, but also the volume of deals you can do in a short period of time and the size of deals you can do as well. So bond and loan deals in the US just seem to happen so much faster. It's almost closer to the investment grade market sometimes. It's larger, it's deeper. I mean, I always find it quite amusing because Europe and the US, at least historically, used to be about the same size in terms of GDP, uh, at least around in you know, 2008 and early 2010s. But you know, the US capital markets is four to five times bigger. Uh, the depths of the markets are just so much more. And so a deal that in Europe, you know, a, a large single B deal or B minus deal or a even a triple C rated deal, in Europe, that might take a week or a week and a half to get done, and you might need basically every single investor to play in the deal. In the US, you can get that done in a couple of days, and you don't need the whole market to participate. So it's just a lot faster, a lot more liquid, and a little, just a little bit more developed than the European markets. And I think also the scale, some of the companies are just so much bigger. Uh, you know, We looked at a, a business in the US called Raising Cane's, which does effectively chicken fingers, and it had like a billion dollars of EBITDA, it's a massive business. Uh, and so sometimes when you look at some of the European deals that are, you know, 150, 200 million EBITDA, I used to think, well, that's a really decent sized deal in Europe. And in the US, people just might not be as interested in that. It's just seen as a little bit, a little bit smaller. So I think the US, faster, more liquid, things get hoovered up and, and you can do some pretty big deals in, in terms of size. 
And I guess how have you found living there on a on a personal level? I mean, I've heard that New York, um, the pints aren't as good. They're a lot more expensive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I think I probably never had a dodgy pint in London. Uh, and I think I had three in one night in New York so that I had to I had to send back because they were flapped or off or whatever. Shameful. Was terrible, terrible. And, and New York is definitely more expensive as well. I mean, it used to be expensive 10 years ago in the same way that London was expensive in the UK, but now it's just significantly more expensive even than London. London. I think if you look at the data, it says it's around 30% more expensive, but it, it often feels an awful lot more than that. Uh, so pints here are definitely more affordable. And at least when you're here, one of the big cultural differences as well is that the price you see is what you pay, whereas in the US, you have to pay for taxes and tips. And I guess I'm just not quite fully culturally used to that yet. <laughs> Gosh. Um, well, yeah, I mean, yes, back to the market chat. Um, given uh, high interest rates and difficulties that companies are facing with refinancing their debt, we at the Distressed Debt team have been seeing a lot of activity. Do you think levels of distress are likely to pick up further in the year ahead? Hard to tell. Get the crystal ball out. But we've kind of been waiting for the, the promised, long-promised big distressed wave for a long time. But ultimately, defaults seem to be remaining pretty low. And what I find quite interesting is that there's a lot of capital structures who were set up for or configured for a very low interest rate environment. You know, when base rates were 0% and you saw some single B companies doing bond deals at like 2%, 3%. And to be honest, who can blame the companies and the CFOs? Rates were zero for so long and that's been the name of the game. And so you set up your capital structure for that. Um, but, you know, absolute rates are in a completely different place today. So... Um, you know, on in if you look at the European High Yield Index, the Bank of America Index, it's in the mid 600s, and that's a quite heavily double B weighted index. So if you're in a single B, you're at a premium to that, and you need to go back to 2012 or 2013 in order to find a period where you had such high absolute yields. Uh, so if you're a company who issued debt a few years ago, and you have to refinance in the next few years. It's genuinely possible that your cost of debt could increase by one and a half times, maybe even double. And that can be quite scary because one of the ways that some of these companies structure their their uh, debt stacks was for maximum possible leverage uh, to still get a single B rating. So maybe looking at about two times interest cover. If your interest rate and your cost of debt is doubling, that's not refinanceable anymore. And you're just about able to service your interest. So um, I think it's going to be an interesting few years, especially as the maturity wall kind of kicks in in 25 and 26. But I'm surprised that there really should have been a bigger distress wave already. Uh, it's kind of been a perfect storm. You have interest rates rising, which means that your valuations get compressed and your headroom as a lender versus the enterprise value is massively reduced. And then we had a tricky time with earnings and companies having to pass through, you know, inflationary rises. But we haven't. And then the cost of the cost of capital goes up as well. But other than real estate, which has been a bit of a minefield, there's not really been any mega blow ups. And Lots of the larger cap structures in Europe, like EG Group, Baltice, they're a little troubled, but they're finding a way to plot the course to something that's more sustainable, whether that's equity injections or asset sales or pick debt in order to right-size the capital structure. Uh, so people are people are so far been have been finding a way to avoid major, major distress. We shall see. Um, and aside from distress debt, we've seen a huge surge in private credit issuance. This year, as funds are quickly hoovering up the gap left in the market by the traditional banks, do you see this trend also continuing? Absolutely. I mean, why would anyone want to be a bank lender today? It's just, just not cool anymore. There's tons <laughs> of regulation. There's increasing capital ratios in Europe and the US. The barriers for bank lending are, are all increasing. And you know, 
just start a private credit fund instead. You don't have to deal with the, the regulation and the overhead. Um, and I mean, in theory, banks should have like a way lower cost of capital than a private credit fund just holding people's deposits. And in most instances, not even passing through what current base rates are. But the kind of increased capital requirements in the regulation just means that banks are kind of having more and more disincentive to lend and private credit stepping into that gap. Uh, so private credit is is kind of the new cool thing. It's eating the world. And, you know, it's everywhere, whether it's large cap deals, real estate, infrastructure, investment grade lending, NAV lending, even dipping into your world of distress. It's It's everywhere. And if you can get mid single digits unlevered, for secured lending at maybe 50% loan to value, that's really pretty attractive. And so when people say it's, you know, quote unquote, the golden age of private credit, and that's kind of why it's a little bit of a generational opportunity, but you don't have many markets where you get like mid single, mid double digit returns, where you don't start to see competition arrive and either drive those returns lower or push, you know, make the terms looser, push, you know, through higher risk, higher leverage, weaker documentation. So uh, it's still early days, but uh, but private credit isn't going away anytime soon. Interesting. Watch this space. Um, I guess which deals across the Levfin universe have stood out to you the most? Well, actually, I think this year has been a little bit dull <laughs> across a lot of the stuff that we look at. Uh, you know, usually we're thinking about, oh, there's going to be a complete refinancing or a brand new LBO or there's going to be a restructuring and we're going to have to look at, you know, the details of this, you know, deal and who's going to put in new money and is there a consent that's going to go through? Are we going to do a J. Crew style transaction? But this year, a lot of stuff's just been quite boring A&E. And, you know, if you're an existing CLO lender and someone comes along and say, hey, can you extend as long as you could do it through your CLO and you get a little bit of a margin pickup, it's, it's really a little bit dull. And so, um, and for the banks as well, they don't make anywhere near as much money from, from A&E. So they'll be hoping to have some more more exciting stuff but there are a few interesting transactions that we've seen uh, in Europe and some things from the US so I think in Europe quite recently we've seen the return of dividend recaps which in this environment is quite interesting especially if we're on the cusp of, of a recession but if you're a sponsor at the moment and there's no way to get an M&A exit then you want to take a little bit of cash off the table dividend recap it could be an interesting option but you've got a big contrast in the market between big high quality credits like Belron Action Retail this year, you know, did did dividend recaps chunk of chunky size, and then you had some smaller deals more recently with you know small loan add-ons to existing lenders for a dividend. What I'm interested in, in next year is if the M and A market still isn't there, are there going to be any more full-on recaps with slightly more challenged credits where maybe you take a B one structure and you you know recap it so that it becomes a B three with the sponsor taking a lot of their money off the table. I'd probably be a little bit more reluctant to lend to those or to facilitate those types of transactions, but we may see some some people trying them. And then in terms of, I guess, specific interesting deal terms, there's a few things between investment grid and between private credit markets that has been quite interesting. So in the US, there was a deal from Lisa and Doug, and they had, when they were originally trying to syndicate the deal, they had term loans, which had a, a pick coupon step up dependent on ratings because people were worried about the business being downgraded to triple C. Uh, which I'd not seen before. I'd not seen, you know, a, a pickup in interest rate or a coupon pick based on what the rating agencies said. But in the end, the deal struggled and, and it went to the private credit market in, instead, as we reported on. And mm. um, some other funky stuff too. So, uh, coupon steps in American Airlines deal in the U.S. If their collateral coverage ratio dipped below a certain level, that's not something I'd come across before. 
and then some of the stuff that's maybe a little closer to Bianca's world and the distress side of things. But uh, again, in the US, you have people doing some quite bespoke things in the high yield market over there. So there's a company called High Peak Energy, listed business, and they had a whole range of funky things in their covenants that might have been more at home in a private credit deal. So they had basically a CapEx restriction or covenant. They had to buy back bonds with excess cash flow. And if they didn't, they had coupon step up. So that's that's all been, been quite interesting stuff. Okay, so in some interesting stuff from the US then. So looking ahead to 2024, what what are your predictions for the, the state of the market? You're trying to get me to crystal ball gears again. I don't know. I don't know. Let's see. I'm hoping that we'll see a pickup in some more LBO activity next year uh, from a selfish perspective, just to make things a little more exciting and interesting. Uh, or if not, maybe a pickup in distress. So either way works for me. Uh, and to see a little bit more creative, creative structuring. And it'll be, I think it's going to, a lot of it will be driven by interest rates and then the, the maturity wall. So it doesn't feel like markets think we're going to have loads of extra interest rate rises. So if things stabilize a little bit or you see some rate cuts, which I think are priced in, then you might see people, you know, come back to the market and try and address some of that maturity wall. Okay, well, let's turn our attention to Ninefin. It's been a big year in terms of growth. Talk us through the main changes that we've gone through. We've hired a lot of people and skilled up a lot. So Bianca is a Ninefin veteran now. Uh, but, you know, 18 months ago, I think we were maybe one or two people in the US. And now we're more than 50. Uh, as a company, we've got more than 100 in London. So really we've kind of scaled up our capabilities across the globe. And we've also broadened the offering because some of the lines between what's a traditional Levfin deal or a private credit deal or a distressed deal or structured credit, they're all starting to blur a little bit. And so we've managed to attract a lot of amazing talent. We've seen a lot of our team progress really quickly as well, with people being promoted or stepping up massively in terms of the content uh, they're producing. And we're kind of transitioning now from from startup to scale up in, in the quest for world domination of all things debt. <laughs> Amazing. Um, we've also l launched a lot of exciting products this year, including integrating AI across our platform. Uh, what are some of the new products that you are excited about? I think the AI one's going to be very interesting. And it's going to be interesting both for the products that we have, but also for markets more generally in terms of how people apply it in some of the, the kind of more typical high yield credits, things like call center businesses, things like that might have some interesting applications for AI. For us, uh, I think, you know, the way that people find and retrieve information quickly, uh, AI is going to completely change that. And I think this is probably going to be a little bit more akin to the kind of step change that was the internet or mobile rather than the kind of fad or false dawn that we had from Bitcoin and crypto, uh, which has kind of fizzled out. Yeah, the death of crypto. Um, I guess what's on Ninefin's agenda for 2024? More hiring, more growth. Uh, I think we've got some completely new offerings in private credit and in the CLO and structured uh, credit space. We've got a ton more data um, to add to the platform and then also more sophisticated content and, of course, plenty of puns and fun along the way. Amazing. Uh, as we all know, Ninefin is your baby. But what do you do to switch off? I know that you're um, a big fan of Love Island. Uh, so is it mainly trash TV or are there any other guilty pleasures? What a great question. Uh, absolutely. A bit of Love Island whenever it's on. There's multiple series now. I've been slowly introduced to the American version. And uh, there's also uh, a TV show in the US called Below Deck, which I've started to watch, which is similarly uh, trashy TV. So that's about as far removed from debt finance markets as is possible to get. So yeah, it's a fun way to switch your brain off at, at the end of the day. So I look forward to 
swapping all the goss on uh, on those series with you soon, Bianca. <laughs> I mean, it's funny. I cover distressed real estate, and then I go home and I watch Selling Sunset. So you know, it's a good it's a good balance, I think. Um, okay, well, that's all we've got time for this week. Thanks for joining us today, Stephen. Thanks for having me, Bianca. And thanks to you, our lovely listeners, for tuning in. As usual, if you have any feedback, you can reach out to us at team at ninefin.com. And we hope you all have a wonderful Christmas and we will see you in the new year.